Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come today with great anticipation and just thankfulness in our hearts that we could um, come and to meet with you, to worship and to praise you, but Lord, that we could also come and to listen as your, as your word is, is shared with us this morning. But Father, we know that our temptation can be at times even to hear the word and not really to truly grasp it, for it to, Lord, not only touch our minds, but also our wills and our hearts as well. And that's our prayer today. God, that we could hear with words of faith, or with, uh, with an attitude of faith to receive your word and to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as we look at our passage today from 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 17, kids, I just want to say that the things that I'm going to say today may be in sometimes, some ways, sort of difficult to, to understand. And uh, But if that's the case, don't give up. Keep listening. And just ask your parents after church what I said. And they'll be more than happy to tell you, which means I have to say it clear enough that your parents understand. So anyway, but let's... Uh, Let's just look at the scriptures today. And as, as we do, I think we're reminded that as America, we've been racing down the road of relativism for a long time. Those of us that are older in the congregation, I won't point us out, but we can remember a time when America really still believed that there was absolute truth, that things were either right or things are wrong. But that's not been the case for, for quite some time. Steadily, the moral foundation, even of Christendom in many ways, has been eroding. Today, our society is in a state of ethical chaos. And unfortunately, rather than the church fighting against this, much of the chaos has been absorbed by the church. And that's uh, that's very different than the picture that the Apostle Paul gives uh, in, in the scriptures as he talks to this young man, Timothy. He says uh, in First Timothy, not Second Timothy, but in First Timothy, his first letter, chapter three, verse 15, he he describes the church or he says that the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. That is the, the support of truth. But the church today, unfortunately, has more typically become the mirror of society, even joining in in what culture says, rather than fighting the, against the chorus of people who say that there is no truth. And unfortunately, even church leaders today, some church leaders at least, have endorsed things like fornication and homosexuality, you know, even in some cases, extreme cases, even extramarital affairs. And things like this that are that are just outright contrary to the word of God. And they would say, you know, because after all, isn't love supreme? That's oftentimes the argument that they'll use. Now, I would hope and I would expect out of you as a congregation, as we've just got done studying First Corinthians 13, that somebody would stand up and say, wait a minute. But doesn't the Bible say that love rejoices in the truth? You know, and so therefore you can't just lay aside the truth in the name of love because love and truth go hand in hand. And I think even if we say that there, that there may be those of you who would say, yeah, but, you know, who are you to say what's true? 
You know, you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. But how dare you try to impose your views upon me that we have to make our own way in this world and we have to be our own authority. And all that may sound good that everyone can believe whatever it is that they want to believe. But if we're honest, such thinking, this relativistic thinking in our culture today has left many people disillusioned and hopeless and even despondent because we cannot live our lives consistently this way because God has not created us to be our own authority. He has created us as human beings to live under his authority. So where can we go to find valid answers to life's questions? Where can we go to find trustworthy, authoritative standards of faith and conduct? And, and like I said, I know that there would be those who would even listen to those questions that I ask and would scoff at, at me for even asking such questions. But I, I would want to challenge them, and I hope you would. And I know you work with these people. I know you live beside these people and others. And I think we need to challenge them to just, you know, in those moments when they stop long enough in life, I think life uh, that is one of Satan's ploys is to keep our lives so busy that we don't stop and really reflect and think about uh, the deep things of life. But when we are in those moments, when we are by ourselves and with nobody else and we stop long enough to think about life, when the loneliness begins to creep in and the way in which we live, we are living doesn't seem to work. You know, I think it's really important for us to ask people these questions that they might ponder and think about such things. Where can we go to find valid answers to life's questions? And I think even as Christians, we need to challenge ourselves, you know, to, to think about this as well. As we encounter situations in our life, as we are sort of pressed in, as, as things happen, circumstances happen in our life that sort of rock our world, where do we go for answers? Where is it that we turn? Do we go to the scriptures to see what they say? Or is our propensity to go, you know, get on Facebook and see, you know, type out our question and say, hey, what do you guys think about this? Or to go look for an article or, or turn to your best friend and say, hey, what do you think I ought to do? You know, I think even we oftentimes as Christians can wrestle uh, with understanding the true nature of the scriptures and, and, you know, why it is that God has given to us, although the answer of historic Christianity to these questions of where can we go to find valid answers to life is this sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. God has spoken to us as his people. He has not abandoned us. He's not left us to our own devices, which what I mean by that is to our own way of thinking. He hasn't just left us to try to figure it out ourselves. He has given uh, the world the gift of the truth that is found only in the word of God because the Bible alone is inspired by God. It alone is infallibly true and it alone is authoritative. And I want us to, to look at those things this morning because the church has not always thought this way. In the medieval church or the church in the dark ages, it, it had come to the point where the church had elevated tradition and the scriptures to be equal. Tradition included uh, 
a multitude of, of practices that were not found in the Bible, but had been accepted by the church and had been practiced in the church for years. And when I mean years, I don't mean like three to five years. I'm talking for centuries, for hundreds of years. Um, and whether they had just come into the church because they had been common practices or maybe popes or councils had had uh, said that these were supposed to be the practices. And then over this idea of tradition in Scripture in the church was this idea that there was this, this holy office, this infallible teaching office of the Pope that would give the final interpretation as to whether tradition or scripture ought to be followed. So in other words, the church was exalted above the tradition and the scriptures and people came to the church to hear what was to take place. But of course, the reformers opposed that view and instead held the solo scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. But they didn't just wake up one day and say, well, we wanna go against the church. It's as these reformers were reading the word of God they saw what God's word said about itself. And that's where they came to the conviction, even willing, being willing to oppose the church that they love so dearly, and even willing to die if necessary, to share the truth of what the word of God says. And once again, I would suggest to you that we are facing a period of time when we need to once again remember Sola Scriptura. That the church does not always, unfortunately, turn to God's word and the scriptures for its faith and its practice, for what it believes and how it lives its life. That there, are, unfortunately, are some in the church who want to make popular opinion the rule of the church. Or, or they want to bring the Bible in line with science and give undisputed authority to the claims of science. And so they sort of put the word of God in uh, under these things. But listen to what Paul says to this young preacher, Timothy. He says this about the word of God itself. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, that is mature, equipped for every good work. Now, it's, it's uh, nice that the ESV actually uses the word breathed out by God. Kids, do you know what some of the other translations say? They say that this, that all scripture is inspired by God. Now that's a big word and that's sometimes difficult to understand, but all it means is it's breathed out by God. In other words, God's the one that spoke it. God's the one that says whatever you read in the Bible is what God has said. And we need not ever to forget that, that the Bible itself is the very word of God. God is the source of the Bible. The Bible is not just a collection of what some really smart people thought, but it is God's wisdom for us as his people. If I could, let me read from another passage that's similar to 2 Timothy, and that's from 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Peter says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, what we read 
in the scriptures is not just somebody's opinion or their interpretation. He goes on in verse 21. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when the human authors, when when uh, Paul or John or others wrote down these words, kids, that you read in this book, it's not just their own words, but they spoke from God. Now, that doesn't mean that they just sat there like a, a secretary and and, you know, how a boss will just tell a secretary, OK, write this letter and the secretary will just write down what God said. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about mechanical inspiration. Rather, God worked in and through the circumstances and the personalities of these biblical writers in such a way that their writings reflected their individual personality and traits and their gifts. But yet it was the word of God. So, for example, if you were to take John's Greek, which every Greek student starts with the book of John. You know why? Because John's Greek is just perfect. It's just very orderly. And it's just like, you know, it's like Greek for for babies or something. I don't know. It just it's just done very well. Paul, on the other hand, his Greek is way different. Usually that comes with more advanced Greek because Paul's sentence structure is very complex. And, and he'll take like, uh, you know, two pages just to, to make one thought. Sometimes he just, just sort of gets caught in rabbit trails and he goes on. So you see the personalities of each of the writers. Well, so these biblical writers were handpicked individuals with unique gifts that God used. But when they wrote, each one wrote the very word of God. So the human and the divine are sort of brought together. It sort of reminds you where Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. He's truly God and truly man and yet without error. Likewise, the Bible sort of unites that human and the divine without error as well. And so the Bible is an inspired word of God, as it says. Let me just read one more passage for you where it just comes right out and says, Scripture is the, is the word of the oracles of God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, with the word of God. So that's our confidence that the Bible is the word of God. Now, how many of you are surprised by that, that the Bible is the word of God? No, we know that. We know that. There's, there's nothing new. You all are probably out there thinking, okay, let's get on to the second point. We already know this. But my question is, do we know this? Do we know this? There are those in the church even who would say and view the scriptures as actually just the wisdom of men who wrote this down. Or, or maybe even a combination of what God said and what the human author said. And so you'll hear things like this. The Apostle Paul hated women. He had a low view of women. And so those things are actually not the words of God. Those are the words of Paul. So whenever Paul talks about the role of women in the church, you don't have to listen to that. Now, we would listen. We would hear those words, Right. And we would shake our heads and we would think, you've got to be kidding me. You know, that just that like hurts our reformed ears to, to hear such things. But brothers and sisters, do we do we truly 
view this as the inspired word of God. I know as a preacher, I am challenged every Sunday as I stand up here to be challenged. Am I just preaching a sermon or do I understand that I have been tasked with the responsibility of handling the very words of God to preach to you faithfully? There's a big difference between those two, a huge difference. It is very humbling when we really understand that these are the words that God has spoken to us as his church. And so, you know, I wonder if we might be tempted at times to view the Bible as less than what it really is. Do we ever think that the Bible is a book that we ought to read? You know, yeah, it's a good idea. Or, or do we rather see it as the very word of God speaking to us? Dads, do you take the scriptures and are you delighted to take your family to the word of God each day and for you to have family worship that your kids might hear the very words of God? Or do we think, ah, you know, it's okay. We don't, we can have family worship tomorrow. And I will confess to you, I have said those very words, unfortunately. It is so easy for us to become so comfortable with the word of God that we forget truly what the nature of this book is, that it's not just a book, but it is a privilege that the Lord has given to us. You know, has, you know, did Jesus not say to the Jews, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the delight that we have as God's people, that we can enjoy the word of God. But not only is it inspired, but it is infallible and it is inerrant. Kids, and and it is that and those in the original manuscripts. And when I say it's inerrant, I mean it's without error. And infallible, though, is even a little bit uh, loftier word. It means that it's not only without error, but it's without the possibility of error, which makes sense. If God is the one that spoke the word, and, and God is a God that tells the truth. Is it, does it not make sense in that his word must convey the truth? That it means that all scripture is true. In John 17, 17, we read, sanctify them. This is Jesus praying to his father. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the church may err. People may err. Councils and confessions may err. But scripture does not err. It does not make mistakes because of God's character. This reflects God's character. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You know, we know that God does tell the truth. But there are some who find it difficult that the Bible is without error and even the possibility of error because they claim that there are errors in scriptures. But let me suggest that these are just perceived errors, limitations or contradictions. You know, often such a, a reluctance uh, about the Bible comes more from an acceptance of worldly assumptions and it has to do with the Bible inherently being wrong. That oftentimes, even in our modern world, people have a bias against the supernatural world or uh, a hatred of external authority. And so they see things that are errors that are really not errors. Now, there are difficult things in scriptures to understand. Granted, I will admit that. 
But it is interesting that even things that were understood to be difficulties, uh, even at the beginning of uh, the 20th century, now uh, we understand them more fully. But, but the reality is that oftentimes it comes from the person's bias. I think, for example, of, and I don't remember if it was a History Channel special or PBS. I want to say it's PBS, maybe. But I remember when I was younger, I was watching this PBS special, and they were talking about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And they had this scientist on there who was explaining about how this was not of God. That this actually, if you look at the place where they crossed the Red Sea, that the formation of the geography of that place was such that if the wind just blew a certain way and it blew just at the right angle and at the right speed for this certain amount of time, that it actually could have caused the water to part. And so they could have walked across and dry land. And so they were sort of proud of themselves that they had just disproven that God didn't do this. And I remember thinking even as a kid, I thought, yeah, but isn't God the one that caused the wind to blow just this right way at just this right angle and just this amount of time to do this? But you see, that person had such a bias that God didn't exist that that wasn't even part of the formula. And so while that those kind of things might seem like contradictions in the minds of some, they, they really are not. And so the scriptures are both in, inspired, they are infallible, and so therefore they are authoritative. Uh, they're really, and that's really the bottom line when it comes to the Bible. At no point may a disciple of Christ decide to oppose the Bible and run his life based on his own set of standards rather than on those of the Bible. The Bible is a standard. And we just read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, and I'm not going to take the time to read it again, but we, we notice that Jesus tells us how much the word remains authoritative until heaven and earth pass away. All of it remains authoritative. Jesus affirms the authority of the whole Bible for all time. Because the Bible is perpetually authoritative, therefore we are called as his people to keep it and to teach it. But brothers and sisters, I would also say we are to cherish it. We are to value it. We are to see it for the treasure that it is. You know, I think that uh, sometimes, um, and, and this is unfortunate, that in many churches, it, it's getting to be where we're not, we don't have much of a stomach to teach the doctrines and the teachings of scriptures. I noticed even things that, that uh, I had the, the privilege of enjoying as a, as a little kid are no longer part of the church. You know, we used to teach the hymns of the church to our kids. They used to memorize scripture, memorize the catechisms. They, we used to fill the minds of our kids much more with God's word and the things that help them to understand God's word. And we have gotten away from that in many of our churches. And it is my desire and my hope with Kirk of the Plains that we might reinstitute many of those things. That as we sort of get our Christian education underway, that we might have the privilege to do that. But I hope in your homes you are also doing that as well. Don't wait on the church, but do that. Now, I just want to say one thing when it comes to authority what does that mean then that tradition and the church and reason have no place when it comes to the authority 
of God's word. Because I think oftentimes, at least in the reform camp, we can sometimes say more than what we're really trying to say. And what I mean by that, I, I really appreciate Keith Matheson. He points out that the reformers believed in sola scriptura, not solo. That is, uh, that it is scripture alone, not scripture only, that is um, that has to do with authority. In other words, scripture alone is the final authority. But there are other things that that help us to understand Scripture that and and those are tradition, the church and reason. Let me explain myself, lest you throw tomatoes. Uh, First of all, tradition. As you think about the tradition of the church, tradition is to be subservient. So even like this morning, as we read from the larger catechism as to what it teaches about the Bible, that is not equal with what I read from Matthew 5 or what I read from 2 Timothy. And yet it is helpful and it is useful in the church. And what I mean by tradition is that our ancestors has passed on to us their way of doing things and seeing things from God's word. And so the tradition that I'm talking about is a tradition that is based upon the word of God, that there were those such as Luther, Calvin, Knox, Swingley, others who read the word of God, the scriptures, and there were certain practices that they did as a result of reading that. And those traditions have been passed down through the church. Now, I'm not talking about traditionalism. Traditionalism is the idea, and I've actually been part of churches that were more uh, in line with traditionalism than tradition. Traditionalism is sort of the idea that, well, you know what? We've never done it that way before in this church, and so we're not going to do it that way, okay? That is not scriptural, okay? That is not scriptural. Tradition is based upon scripture. So if we take If we have the advantage of using the confessions and the creeds of the church and someone were to ask us and say, now, where do you get that from Scripture? We should be able to go back to Scripture and to show them where that comes from, because that's the final authority is only the word of God. You know, traditionalism is just we've not done it that way before. And if you bring the Bible to churches like that and you say, well, but the word of God says this, you know what they'll say to you? We've never done it that way before, and we're not going to do it that way. Because what they've done is they've elevated, believe it or not, they've elevated tradition to be above Scripture. They would not realize that, but they would. And I just want to mention this whole idea of tradition because I think that we live in a generation that really values the new as opposed to the old. As a matter of fact, we are sort of a youth culture type of, uh, of uh, culture you know, where we appreciate innovation, we appreciate new. Believe it or not, um, this is the way I would put it. I think that we actually have bought in more to evolutionary thinking than we realize. Because evolution says man is getting better, he's getting good, and so you sort of cast off the old because that's part of the old evolution, and you actually uh, need to listen to the new. And so there's a sense in which, you know, that many churches today are actually focusing on youth ministry and on things that are new. They say that the youth are the, the future of the church and to the exclusion of respecting and caring for and loving and ministering to those who are getting older. And yet that's not the view of Scripture. Now, let me just say this. If we went to the opposite direction, though, and said 
So therefore, if it's old, it's good. That's as equally as wrong in Scripture's eyes. Something is not good because it is old. But there is a sense in which we are in a long line of tradition where God has been working through his church for thousands of years. And we can't just say, well, now that Kirk of the Plains has come to Andover, the gospel has come to Andover. You know, what we have to see is we're just part of what God's been doing for years. And so we can value and we can cherish those things that come before us. G.K. Chesterton, he put it this way. He says, don't move a fence before you know why the fence was put there in the first place. And oftentimes in tradition, there are those fences that our brothers and sisters, as they examine the scripture and saw, they put those in place. And then what we want to do is we want to come in with our modernistic cultural ideas and just say, let's take the fence down. And you're going, why? And they're like, well, because the fence is here and it's been here and it's old. And let's just take it down. It doesn't help. And we don't even take the time to ask, what was the fence restraining? What, what was the fence defining? What was it keeping out? What was it keeping in? There was some reason why that fence was there. And, and I would even suggest to you that it, in every generation, there are blinders. Our generation has blinders. We're looking at the word of God, but we're doing it with biases in our mind and we don't even realize it. And so as we look at previous generations and see how they interpreted scripture, they don't have the same blinders as we have. They did have blinders. okay? and lots of times as we look back in church history, we can notice what those blinders are. You know, uh, sort of like seeing back in the past is 2020 vision. Right. okay? well, we can see their blinders and so we can sort of uh, avoid those things that, that they were weak on, but it can also show us what we are weak on and help us to understand. And so we value the creeds of the early church and the writings of churches, greatest theologians across the centuries, not because they inherently have authority, but as wise and insightful witnesses of the meaning of Scripture. And so, you know, it's okay if you if somebody says, well, you know, John Calvin said this, you can say, yeah. But I think John Calvin was wrong. That's not heretical to say that. Now, if he holds forth the word of God and says, thus saith the Lord, and we say that's wrong, then we got a problem. Okay, so anyway, I just think that we need to understand that place that, that tradition plays. Just the other thing I want us to understand is that the church has authority, but it is not the final authority. Okay, it is the word of God. So even, and I, I'm just cutting these points short because our time is short, but... Um, but even the elders of our church, I love our elders. I actually had the privilege of handpicking our elders, you know, and it's, it's been great. And I love these men and I respect them very much. But they are not the authority, final authority of uh, Kirk of the Plains. It is the word of God that is the final authority of these men. They are fulfilling an office that God has established and they are fulfilling a role. But if there is something that our session did that was contrary to the word of God. I can't imagine that ever happening. But let's just say for the sake of argument that did happen. You know, any of us could go to these men and could say, but God's word says this. And 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 what God's word says trumps what they do. Now, I know these men well enough that if that did ever happen, I would think they would say, oh, my, I never realized that. And they would repent of their decision and they would bring it in conformity with God's word. But there is a sense in which the church has authority, but it's not the final authority. And then the reason, reason's not bad. The scripture says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our what? Minds. 
Yes, with all of our heart and soul, but also with our minds in Matthew 22, 37. And so, uh, you know, in other places in Scripture, come, let us reason together. James describes God's wisdom as reasonable in James 3, 17. So the Bible's content can't be understood without a sense of applying reason to it. But having said that, it must always be subordinate to the word of God. There are times and things that we do not understand in our own wisdom, in our earthly wisdom, in our, under, our earthly uh, reason. We don't understand. Like, for example, kids, can you explain to me the Trinity? Adults, can you explain to me the Trinity? OK, that God is three and God is one. You know, logically, reason-wise, that's difficult for us to understand. And so what has happened is, and in some churches, they have done away with major teachings of the Bible, like the Trinity and the virgin birth and the dual nature of Christ and inspiration of Scripture and miracles and things like that, because, you know what, they couldn't understand it. And so they said, if I can't understand it, it can't be true. But we need to be careful not to fall into that trap and to understand that if God has said it and he said it clearly and he has said these doctrines clearly, then even if our reason can't understand it, it may be that our reason is not sanctified, that our reason is maybe more worldly and we are just limited as human beings. And so therefore we must understand and believe God's word rather than uh, our reason. So that brings us down finally to the sufficiency of scripture. That all scripture, it says, is God breathed, is breathed out by God. And it says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, not some good works or even most good works, but the Bible is for every situation in our life. The Bible is complete and unique and sufficient. But there are those who want to juggle with the text of Scripture in such a way as to demonstrate that the current situation that we live in is different than the ancient uh, scriptural, uh, than, than the ancient days of the Scriptures. And so therefore the scriptural norms don't apply. We see that our situation is, is way different. And, and let me just say that I'm not talking about liberals who don't believe in biblical infallibility. I'm talking about conservatives who do oftentimes ascribe to inspiration and infallibility, but they oftentimes do not see the scriptures as being sufficient. And so some of the things, you know, like sexual ethics and ordination and things like that all of a sudden become up for grabs because they don't see that it's sufficient to apply to the church today. But brothers and sisters, we can build a convincing case for biblical inerrancy and authority, but if the if in the end we deny the sufficiency of Scripture, its authority is useless to us. We must follow and live by God's Word. Now, many professing Christians are making foolish life choices and doing so in the name of the Bible. You know, oftentimes I hear today in Scripture, well, the Bible doesn't say I can't do that, so I'm going to do it. And there's not a sense of seeking to understand all of Scripture. There's not a sense of even taking advantage of the tradition that the Lord has given to us. And so where does that leave us? Oftentimes, even in the church, we find ourselves being very battled by the world. And we have all these different choices. And I see Christian kids, kids listen to me. I see a lot of Christian kids who are listening to what their friends are saying and they're totally ignoring what the Bible says. And they're confused and they don't know what to do. 
And I even have heard elders' kids say, so now why again is it wrong? Why is homosexuality wrong? Why is that? Because they have forgotten those things. But we need to be a church that seeks to live by sola scriptura, not only in our public gathering as a church, but also in our homes as well, that we would value what God's word says and that we would cherish the treasure that he has given to us. So parents, teach your kids the word of God. Help your kids to understand the traditions that the Lord has given to the church, but don't stop with the traditions. Go so far as to explain to them from Scripture where those traditions come from. It's a good remind. It's a good for them, but it's good for us as parents too that we not forget that it is God who has said these things. I know um, I grew up in a church that. Uh, gave me a good example even of the church life, the life of the church. Um, we would gather on Sunday morning for worship, on Sunday night for worship, and on Wednesday nights. And, and I'm not saying that the Bible says that you have to meet at those specific times, but there is a sense of understanding that the Sunday is the Lord's day, you know, and, and they showed me that. But then when I asked, as I got older, I said, now why do we do this? Everybody said, hmm, that's a good question. But nobody took me back to the scripture. Then as I got older and I went to seminary and I became a pastor and I've served for years in the ministry and now I have the opportunity of planning a church, it's caused me to stop and to look and to say, what ought the church to look like? And as I look at the scriptures, I see those things I was raised with. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, those are good things. Those are helpful things for the body of Christ. And I can take you to scripture and we can talk and I can dialogue with you about those things. But it was there, but I was never taught those things. But let us not be a church like that, that just falls into traditionalism, that just falls into, well, that's just how we do it. But let, we, let us be a church that delights in the word of God, submits to the word of God, and understands the freedom that we have because God has spoken to his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you have given to us. And we pray, uh, God, that we would come to cherish your word, that we would come to, to delight in it. Father, we, I, I, I have to admit, I have so appreciated the way that you have taken me out to the woodshed many times in the last uh, months. And you have uh, showed me uh, the motives of my heart. I pray for our church, Lord, that you would do the same for us. God, that you would open our eyes to see those ways that we trust in our own abilities, those ways, God, that we trust in, in our own way of thinking. And Lord, let us cast aside those things. Get rid of those things. May we rest in you. May we delight in you. Lord, may your word truly set us free to enjoy not only you and one another, but also our families as well. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen.